You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a Ph.D. holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 87, Thank God I Have Done My Duty. Thanks for joining me. As always, before we get started, I'd like to thank those of you who have signed up to support me on Patreon. This show would not exist without you. If you're still on the fence, it's not too late to pause, go to patreon.com ageofnapoleon, and hear the rest of this episode ad-free. Anyway, we left off last time on October 18th, 1805. The Franco-Spanish Combined Fleet under Vice Admiral Pierre-Charles Villeneuve had just left the port of Cadiz in southern Spain. In theory, they were bound for Italy to support the French armies fighting on the peninsula. In reality, everyone knew the fleet was headed for a confrontation with the British blockade fleet outside Cadiz under Vice Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson. Looking at the conditions on the eve of the Battle of Trafalgar, I can't help but be reminded of the situation just before Austerlitz. Much like Napoleon's Grande Armée, the Royal Navy of the early 19th century had evolved into one of the most powerful and effective military institutions of all time. Just like the men of the French army, Britain's sailors had drilled relentlessly during their boring blockade duties of 1803 and 4. They were probably as well prepared for a battle as any sailors in history up to that point. From what we can tell, their morale was very high. Many accounts of British veterans describe an eagerness for battle. Most of these men had either been fruitlessly chasing the combined fleet for months or languishing on blockade duty. A decisive battle would mean an end to their labors, and they were generally confident of success. Somewhere around 60% of the British crews were veteran Navy men. That might not sound like much, but none of their rivals came close to that level of experience. On top of that, many of the so-called fresh recruits in the British fleet actually did have some experience of life at sea. Whenever possible, navies of this era recruited from among merchant mariners, fishermen, and whalers. Those few without sailing experience were quickly absorbed into the professional culture of the Royal Navy. The British commander, Lord Horatio Nelson, was a singular genius in his prime, just like Napoleon. And, just like the Emperor on the eve of Austerlitz, he was going into battle with supreme confidence and a bold, innovative plan to go right at the enemy in two columns, sail through their line, 
and engage them at close range. It was a very different story in the combined fleet. France and Spain were uneasy allies, and there was friction between the two nationalities within the fleet. In fact, they were getting along even worse than the Austrians and Russians on the eve of Austerlitz. Just like in the Allied army at Austerlitz, many of the leaders of the combined fleet had misgivings about the coming battle. Some of them believed it shouldn't be fought at all. And in truth, they would be fighting this engagement for a dubious reason. The commander, Pierre-Charles Villeneuve, had been warned by the Minister of the Navy that he was about to be fired. His replacement was already on the way, and the only way to avoid disgrace would be to sail out and beat Nelson before he could be formally relieved of command. I can't help but be reminded of Emperor Alexander of Russia at Austerlitz, sending his men into battle for reasons of pride and ambition over the advice of his generals. Just like in the coalition army, many of the officers of the combined fleet had misgivings about the coming battle, but this outlook was not shared by the common sailors. When news began to spread that the fleet was preparing to sail, hundreds of sick French and Spanish sailors left the hospital without permission to rejoin their ships. They didn't want to miss the final confrontation. There are plenty of things to criticize about the French Navy of 1805, but they certainly didn't lack fighting spirit. Perhaps that's partially because they weren't experienced enough to understand just how bad their situation was. We don't know as much about the men of the combined fleet as we do about Nelson's men, but from what we do know, it's clear that these crews were very green. Probably a majority of the men in the combined fleet were fresh recruits, and unlike on the British ships, very few of these new men had any maritime experience. The French Navy had scraped the bottom of the recruiting barrel long ago. There were no more pools of experienced mariners to draw from. Instead, they siphoned off conscripts bound for the army, landlubbers, most of whom had never set foot on a ship before they were thrust into action. Given where they started, these men had made incredible strides in the months since war began, but they were completely outclassed by their rivals in the Royal Navy. Generally speaking, they were patriotic and enthusiastic, but simply didn't know their business. The experience level of the Spanish contingent was roughly the same. In fact, shortly before the battle, three Spanish captains had warned Villeneuve that their crews were experienced enough to sail, but would need more training and time at sea before they would be ready to fight in a major battle. On several Spanish ships, most of the sailors had never even left port. In his proclamation to the fleet, Admiral Villeneuve had told his men that they were only a month away from being as skilled as the British sailors. In fact, the British advantage in experience was probably better measured in years, or even decades. There was one other important similarity with Austerlitz. Like Napoleon, Nelson had a bold and innovative plan that would play to all the strengths of his men. He planned to drive straight at the combined fleet in two columns, cut their line, and engage the rear half of the enemy force in close action, hopefully capturing or destroying a large number of them before the ships at the front of the line had time to react. Just like at Austerlitz, the enemy plan would play right into Nelson's hands. 
As he prepared his fleet for battle, Villeneuve planned to arrange his ships in a long, curved line, just as Nelson's plan envisioned. However, unlike the coalition leadership at Austerlitz, Villeneuve had guessed exactly what Nelson had in mind. He had faced the British many times, and understood the capabilities of their crews, and the way their officers liked to fight. And he knew what he would have done in Nelson's shoes. Nearly a year before Trafalgar, Villeneuve wrote to the naval ministry, quote, The enemy will not limit themselves in forming one line of battle. They will seek to surround our rearguard, to pass through our line, and to close in on the isolated ships to run them down. End quote. So, what was he doing? Why had he chosen a tactic that he knew would leave his ships vulnerable to Nelson's plan? Villeneuve didn't feel like he had a choice. From another letter to the naval ministry, quote, We have outdated naval tactics. We can only get into a line, which is exactly what the enemy wants. I have no means, no time, and no possibility to adopt another tactic, with the commanders to whom the vessels of the combined fleet are trusted, the majority of whom have never used their heads to reflect or have any spirit of comparison. I believe everyone will stay at their posts, but not one will be capable of taking a bold decision. End quote. In other words, more complicated tactics would require Villeneuve to rely on his captains taking the initiative. In the smoky chaos of battle, with ships scattered across miles of ocean, it simply wouldn't be possible for the commander of the fleet to direct his ships with any precision. So any unorthodox maneuvers in a naval battle would have to be executed by the captains themselves, using their own discretion. Villeneuve knew his captains could fight, but he was not confident in their ability to carry out a complicated battle plan without supervision. The line formation was not totally without merit. It was easy to form. Villeneuve could be reasonably confident that even his least experienced crews would be able to pull it off. It would also give the combined fleet a chance to train all their firepower on the British as Nelson made his attack. Nelson's whole plan relied on the fire from the combined fleet being too slow and inaccurate to stop his attack columns. If the French and Spanish gun crews could exceed his expectations, they could slow down or even stop the attack run. If that happened, Admiral Villeneuve would have a chance to pull off an upset victory. But, given the state of the French and Spanish crews, that was a big if. And so, with his fleet and his career on the line, Admiral Villeneuve would go into battle using a tactic he knew to be inferior. He didn't believe there was any other choice. Just like at Austerlitz, you could make the argument that the outcome at Trafalgar was a foregone conclusion, that once Villeneuve decided to fight on his enemy's terms, the combined fleet was doomed. In fact, I would say the case is stronger at Trafalgar than at Austerlitz. However, nothing in war is ever certain. In the chaos of battle, surprising things are always possible. Nelson himself knew this well. He had built his career on doing such surprising things. However confident the men of the Royal Navy may have been, none of them took victory for granted, and no one in the combined fleet was resigned to defeat. The odds may have been in Britain's favor, 
but this would be a hard-fought battle. The combined fleet sailed from Cadiz on October 18th, and the ensuing days were strange ones for both fleets. Everyone knew a battle was imminent, but the seas were calm, there was no wind. One British sailor compared the waters around Cadiz to a country mill pond. We can only imagine how the anticipation must have built as the two fleets inched slowly closer. Nelson used the time to write letters to those dearest to him, first to his daughter by Lady Emma, Horatia. She was only four years old at the time and probably had little idea what was going on, but he knew this might be his last chance to communicate with her directly. Quote, My dearest angel, I was made happy by the pleasure of receiving your letter of September 19th, and I rejoice to hear that you are a very good girl, and love my dear Lady Hamilton, who most dearly loves you. Give her a kiss for me. The combined fleets of the enemy are now reported to be coming out of Cadiz, and therefore I answer your letter, my dearest Horatia, to mark that you are ever uppermost in my thoughts. I shall be sure of your prayers for my safety, conquest, and speedy return to dear Merton, and to our dearest good Lady Hamilton. Be a good girl. Mind what your governess tells you. Receive, my dearest Horatia, the affectionate parental blessings of your father, Nelson and Bronte. End quote. Then he wrote a letter to Lady Emma Hamilton, the love of his life. Quote, my dearest beloved Emma, the dear friend of my bosom. The signal has been made that the enemy's combined fleet are coming out of port. We have very little wind, so I have no hopes of seeing them before tomorrow. May the god of battles crown my endeavors with success. At all events, I will take care that my name shall ever be most dear to you and Horatia, both of whom I love as much as my own life. And, as my last writing before the battle will be to you, so I hope in God that I shall live to finish my letter after the battle. May heaven bless you, praise your Nelson and Bronte. End quote. As they chased Villeneuve, Nelson's fleet sailed in two rough columns. This was the formation they would use for the battle, and Nelson didn't want to waste time shuffling his ships around once they caught up to the French and Spanish. Nelson himself would lead the northern column aboard his flagship, the HMS Victory. The southern column would be led by his second-in-command, Vice Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood, aboard the HMS Royal Sovereign. Collingwood was 56 years old and had a considerable reputation within the Royal Navy, both as a sailor and as a leader. Collingwood was nothing like the stereotypical, stern, authoritarian Royal Navy officer. He was kindly and congenial. His men called him father. Despite their somewhat different dispositions, Collingwood and Nelson were very close friends, dating all the way back to their service together in the West Indies, near the beginning of Nelson's career. As the two fleets closed, a small boat pulled up to the HMS Victory, carrying Captain Henry Blackwood of the HMS Euryalus. Blackwood had concerns about the plan for the coming battle, and felt duty-bound to discuss them with his commander. He did not believe Nelson himself should lead the attack. He suggested the admiral either let another vessel take the lead, or move his headquarters off the HMS Victory to another ship further back in the column. Blackwood did have a point. 
Once the HMS Victory was engaged at close range, its officers and crew would be totally focused on the fight, unable to observe or direct the rest of the fleet. In effect, the British would become leaderless. If the battle went wrong, there would be no one to adjust strategy or order a retreat. Of course, this is exactly what Nelson wanted, total commitment to a close-range battle, with the individual captains fighting under their own initiative. By bringing the HMS victory into a close engagement at the very beginning of the battle, Nelson would be effectively forcing his captains to make their own decisions, rather than deferring to his authority. Nelson was aware of the risks. He kindly but firmly rejected Blackwood's suggestions. He then asked Blackwood a favor. He had just written a codicil to his will and needed a witness, so he asked Blackwood to do the honors. This codicil was actually more of an open letter, begging the government and people of Great Britain to take care of Lady Hamilton and Horatia in the event of his death. Remember, Nelson and Emma were not married. If he was killed, his estate would pass to his estranged wife. Once Blackwood signed the codicil, Nelson shook his hand and said, quote, God bless you, Blackwood. I shall never speak to you again. End quote. Nelson wasn't angry with Blackwood. He was implying that the coming battle would be his last. It should be said that there was nothing unusual about this. Nelson had a complicated relationship with his own mortality and often believed he was going to die. That might sound a bit neurotic, but remember, he really had come close to death on dozens of occasions, so perhaps it was rational to be a bit fixated on the idea. However, it's also worth noting that Nelson was convinced that the coming battle would be the crowning glory of his career, an even bigger success than the Battle of the Nile. Between his somewhat dramatic personality, his lust for glory, and his almost messianic sense of mission, I do think it's possible that some part of him liked the idea of dying at the moment of his greatest triumph, going out on the most powerful high that a man like him could ever dream of experiencing. Then again, I have to wonder if a person who harbored such deep feelings of love for Lady Emma and his young daughter could ever wholeheartedly wish for death. Just over the horizon, Admiral Villeneuve was trying to prepare his fleet for the ordeal to come. He issued a final memorandum to his captains, quote, The enemy will not content themselves in forming a line of battle parallel to ours and engaging us in an artillery duel. They will seek to surround our rearguard in crossing our line and in concentrating on those of our vessels that they have cut off with groups of theirs in order to surround them and crush them. In that case, it is more from his own courage and his love of glory that a commanding captain should take counsel, rather than from the signals of the admiral, who, perhaps himself engaged in battle and surrounded by smoke, no longer has the means of making any signals. End quote. Again, it is remarkable just how accurately Villeneuve had guessed what Nelson was trying to do. He knew that if the British managed to break his line, the battle would descend into chaos. In effect, the big battle between the two fleets would devolve into smaller engagements, between clusters of ships fighting at close range and trying to board each other or blast the enemy into submission. In an engagement like that, 
Victory would go to the side whose captains were better able to read the tactical situation and act on it under their own initiative. Villeneuve knew this, and he was trying to prepare his captains to act decisively. At dawn on October 21st, the sentries of the British fleet caught sight of the combined fleet. The weather was still not cooperating, but what little wind there was favored the British. The battle everyone had been eagerly awaiting since the outbreak of the war over two years earlier was finally at hand. On every ship, French, British, and Spanish, the drummers beat out the call to prepare for action, and furious final preparations began. All extraneous items were thrown overboard. In some cases, this included the personal possessions of the officers. Anything to lose weight and gain speed. Sand was spread on the decks to prevent the polished wood from becoming slippery once the blood started flowing. Weapons lockers were opened, axes and cutlasses were sharpened, and pistols and muskets were cleaned and loaded. Below decks, the men of the gun crews stripped off their jackets and shirts and tied bandanas around their heads to secure their earplugs, precautions against the unbelievable heat and noise of dozens of massive naval cannons firing all at once in an enclosed space. The marines took their stations, on deck and in the rigging, to fire on the decks of nearby enemy ships, and in doorways below decks to prevent sailors from deserting their posts. Below the waterlines, space was cleared for the inevitable influx of wounded, and tables set up for the surgeons to do their work. In the gunpowder magazines, sailors carefully prepared charges for the cannons. Every ship would need hundreds by the end of the day, and just one mistake, loading just one of them, could blow the entire vessel to kingdom come. These pre-battle rituals were basically the same in every Napoleonic-era navy but there were a few national differences. Just like in the Grande Armée, every French ship of the line had been issued with a golden eagle standard from the emperor's own hand. As they prepared for action, the officers of the French ships brought the eagles on deck and lashed them to the mast. The appearance of these standards had an electrifying effect on the French sailors. Every ship erupted in cheers. Captain Jean-Jacques Majandie of the French flagship, the Boussantour, described the scene, quote, It is impossible to show more enthusiasm or desire to fight than was done and proved by all the officers, sailors, and marines of the Boussantour. Each one of them put their hands between those of the admiral and renewed their oath upon the eagle, entrusted to us by the emperor, to fight to the very last. Shouts of Long live the Emperor and Long live Admiral Villeneuve were once again repeated. End quote. Meanwhile, a very different version of this scene played out on the Spanish ships. Every Spanish vessel carried a Catholic crucifix. Just like the eagles, these were ceremonially brought out and lashed to the mast in preparation for battle, but with an air of solemn reverence rather than raucous cheers. It was almost as if the two allies had to remind themselves that they were fighting for very different causes. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Between the two fleets, there were over 50,000 men engaged in these furious preparations. Pulses racing, adrenaline coursing through their veins. And then, nothing happened. As the two forces came within sight of each other, the British were ragged and disorganized. They had been focused on speed, not maintaining their formations. They were sailing in the right order, but they had to tighten up before making the attack, and that meant slowing down. The combined fleet was not sailing in the proper order. They had been commanded, all the way from the top, to arrange their battle line in a specific order, which guaranteed that the French and Spanish contingents would share equally in the risk, and equally in the potential glory of victory. This was supposed to encourage trust between the Allies. But on the day of battle, it mostly just caused chaos. When Admiral Villeneuve gave the order to get in formation for battle, his ships had to shuffle around to get in that predetermined order. As we've discussed at length, many of the sailors of the combined fleet lacked the necessary skills for such delicate maneuvers. And so, this shuffling around quickly became a fiasco. As they tried to get in the proper order and form the shallow crescent moon formation envisioned by Admiral Villeneuve, some ships nearly crashed into one another. Others got too far apart from their neighbors, creating huge gaps in the Allied line. Faster ships accidentally overtook the vessels that were supposed to be in front of them in line, and of course, there's no way for a sailing ship to reverse without turning all the way around. It took over two hours just for the combined fleet to get into its battle formation, and by the time they were finished, their line was so ragged and uneven that many British observers believed it was a double-line formation, rather than a poor attempt at a single-file line. Ironically, some British officers actually praised Villeneuve for the cleverness of this double-line, not recognizing it as a mistake. Once the combined fleet was in some semblance of formation, Villeneuve ordered every ship to turn 180 degrees, so they would be facing back the way they came, making it easier to retreat back to Cadiz if the worst should happen. This created even more chaos, and degraded the formation even more. On the Spanish ship San Juan, Captain Cosme Damián de Churuca watched through his spyglass as the ships of the combined fleet scrambled, and largely failed, to execute this simple order. He turned to one of his officers and said, quote, The fleet is doomed. The French admiral does not know his business. He has compromised us all. End quote. Churuca had a point. This was an all-or-nothing engagement. The only likely outcomes were total victory or total disaster. There was little point in trying to hedge their bets. It is a bit pathetic to imagine the combined fleet struggling so hard just to get in a basic formation. But remember, these ships were difficult to maneuver under the best of conditions, and on this day, they had practically no wind to work with. 
and the line was over four miles, or six and a half kilometers, long. This was no easy task. By now, it was late morning. Finally, both fleets were more or less in formation, and ready for the climactic confrontation. It was at this moment that the gentle wind, which had allowed the British to catch up to Villeneuve, died down once again. And so, with all the preparations complete and a battle imminent, there was an odd lull, as the British ships drifted lazily towards the Allied line. A Royal Marine Lieutenant, Samuel Ellis, described the scene on his ship, quote, The men were variously occupied, some sharpening their cutlasses, others polishing the guns, as if an inspection were about to take place, instead of a mortal combat whilst three or four, as if in mere bravado, were dancing a hornpipe. But all seemed deeply anxious to come to close quarters with the enemy. Occasionally they would look out of the gun ports and speculate as to the various ships of the enemy, many of which had been, on former occasions, engaged by our vessels. End quote. Aboard the HMS Royal Sovereign, Admiral Collingwood saw one of his young lieutenants wearing boots and warned him, quote, you had better put on silk stockings, as I have done, for if one should get shot in the leg, they would be so much more manageable for the surgeon. End quote. This was good advice. Silk tended to cut cleanly, and thus was unlikely to get into the wound. And of course, if you were on the surgeon's table with a leg wound, with perhaps only seconds between life and death, the last thing you would want was a delay while someone yanked on your heel to pull off your boot. Nelson found time to write in his diary, quote, May the great God, whom I worship, grant my country, and for the benefit of Europe in general, a great and glorious victory, and may no misconduct in any one tarnish it. And may humanity after victory be the predominant feature in the British fleet. For myself, individually, I commit my life to him who made me, and may his blessing light upon my endeavors for serving my country faithfully. To him I resign myself, and the just cause which is entrusted to me to defend. Amen, amen, amen. End quote. As part of the preparations for action, every fire on every ship had been extinguished. Any flame, no matter how small, was simply too great a danger for a wooden ship packed with gunpowder in the throes of battle. And so, as midday approached, there was no hot food. Hungry sailors chewed on cold salt pork and drank strong Spanish wine as they surveyed the enemy ships, drifting ever closer. On the HMS Victory, Nelson walked the deck, talking to the sailors, trying to keep up morale. Quote, My noble lads, this will be a glorious day for England, whoever lives to see it. I shan't be satisfied with twelve ships this day, as I took at the Nile. End quote. Shortly before noon, Nelson turned to his signals officer, Lieutenant John Pascoe, and said, quote, Mr. Pascoe, I wish to say to the fleet, England confides that every man will do his duty. You must be quick, for I have one more to make, which is for close action. End quote. That's an archaic usage of the word confides. Today, we would say, England is confident every man will do his duty. Pascoe suggested a minor change to the message replacing the word confides with the word expects, which would be easier to translate to flag signals, thus saving time. Nelson agreed, 
and at 11.45, the signal went up from the HMS Victory. England expects that every man will do his duty. The message has gone down in history as one of the most memorable single phrases of the Napoleonic Wars. You might argue that it's one of the most iconic sentences in all of British history. But, at the time, from the people to whom it was actually directed, it got a mixed reception. A British officer would later remember, quote, The sailors did not appreciate it, for there were murmurs from some, whilst others, in an audible whisper, mumbled, Do our duty? Of course we'll do our duty. I've always done mine, haven't you? Let us come alongside of them, and we'll show you whether we'll do our duty. Still, the men cheered vociferously, more, I believe, from love and admiration of their admiral and leader than from a full appreciation of this well-known signal. End quote. I have to say, Mr. Pascoe should have stuck to sailing and left the editing to the professionals. Replacing confides with expects totally changes the tone of the message. I don't blame the sailors for not receiving it well. The signal was only up for a few minutes, just long enough to be repeated along both attack columns. Soon, a new series of flags went up on the HMS Victory, close action. They would stay there until they were shot down by the French. On the other side, Admiral Villeneuve raised his final signal, engage the enemy. As this signal was repeated up and down the four-mile Allied line, cheers rose up from the sailors of the combined fleet. You can debate whether or not they were ready for this fight, but they were certainly eager. The two British columns moved northwest, roughly towards the vanguard of the Franco-Spanish line. But this was a feint. A few minutes before coming into range of the enemy guns, they cut southwest, towards the middle and rear of the combined fleet. Nelson had envisioned the two columns attacking more or less simultaneously, but as they closed the final distance, the lead ship of the southern column, the HMS Royal Sovereign, began to pull away. This was one of the faster ships in the fleet, and Admiral Collingwood had no desire to slow down. Collingwood and the HMS Royal Sovereign would be first to the attack, not Nelson and the HMS Victory. As their ship approached the enemy line, Collingwood told his men, quote, Now, gentlemen, let us do something today which the world may talk of hereafter. End quote. He then ordered his men to lie down, so they would be smaller targets for the Allied fire that was surely coming soon. Shortly before 12, the French ship Fougueux fired a broadside at the approaching HMS Royal Sovereign. The Battle of Trafalgar had begun. This moment, at the very beginning of the battle, with the British ships approaching slowly in their attack columns, was probably the best chance the combined fleet was going to get to foil Nelson's plan. If their gunnery was good, and they were able to stop or destroy the first ships in the attack columns, they could either pick off the British ships one by one as they approached, or force them to deploy into their own line formation, to fight an artillery duel under unfavorable conditions. This was the make-or-break moment for the combined fleet. If they failed here, there would not be many viable paths to victory left open. Unfortunately for the French and Spanish, at this all-important moment, a sudden swell rippled across the still ocean. A swell is a series of waves brought on by a nearby storm. It meant that at this turning point, when the fate of the combined fleet depended on the accuracy of its gunners, 
the French and Spanish ships suddenly began bobbing up and down. Apparently, many of the French and Spanish crews aimed for the enemy mast, a difficult target even under the best of conditions. A French lieutenant would later remember, quote, The audacity with which Admiral Nelson had attacked us was due to the complete contempt that he held, not without reason, for the effects of our artillery. At that time, our principle was to aim at the masts, and in order to produce any real damage, we wasted a mass of missiles that, if fired into the hull of the enemy vessel, could have brought down part of the crew. End quote. And so, much of the early Allied fire passed harmlessly over the deck of the HMS Royal Sovereign. Some damage was done, particularly to the masts, sails, and rigging, but not enough to slow her down. She continued to advance inexorably towards the enemy. There were still large gaps in the Franco-Spanish line, and Collingwood took dead aim at the biggest one he could see, between the French ship Fougueux and the Spanish ship Santa Ana. By now, the HMS Royal Sovereign was close enough that the Allied gunners couldn't help but be accurate. The ship was now under fire from five different enemy vessels, and with her front to the enemy, there was little her crew could do to respond. Collingwood paced the decks, ignoring the enemy fire, or at least pretending to. He ate an apple to show his men he was indifferent to danger. He did eventually pay the price for this little show when he was hit by a large wood splinter from a near miss. The splinter caught him right in the leg. He must have been glad he was wearing silk stockings instead of boots. But Collingwood had made his point. His men held their nerve. As they saw what Collingwood was doing, the Fougueux and Santa Ana tried to close the gap, but it was too late. The Fougueux had to turn at the last minute to avoid being rammed by the HMS Royal Sovereign as she passed. Finally, the side of Collingwood's ship was exposed to the enemy, and he unleashed devastating broadsides at close range. As the HMS Royal Sovereign passed alongside the Santa Ana, their rigging became entangled. In these situations, the two ships usually fought a brutal close-range battle, until one surrendered. The Franco-Spanish line had been broken. The other ships of the southern column made for the gap, and with the Santa Ana tangled with the HMS Royal Sovereign, there was nothing the combined fleet could do to stop them. More French and Spanish ships moved into the area to try to get the situation under control, but they would not be in time to preserve the line formation. Over a year ago, back in England, Nelson had told a friend that he wanted to fight a pell-mell battle with the French. Now he had it. All that remained to be seen was how well his captains would exploit the situation. The northern column, led by Nelson himself aboard the HMS Victory, still had yet to make contact with the enemy. He ordered his helmsman to make for the Spanish vessel Santissima Trinidad. At 140 guns, this was the largest and most heavily armed warship in the world. Nelson couldn't resist a good challenge. However, as he made his final approach, he noticed one of the banners on a neighboring French ship, the Boussantour, a special flag indicating that the commander of the fleet was on board. Nelson couldn't pass up the chance to take on Admiral Villeneuve himself, not even to go after the largest ship in the world. 
If the Busan Tor and the HMS Victory became closely engaged, it would be impossible for Villeneuve to effectively command the rest of the fleet. And so, Nelson ordered his helmsman to change course, and make for the Busan Tor. Now it was the HMS Victory's turn to make the dangerous final approach into the teeth of the enemy guns. Nelson and his crew came under fire from four different enemy ships, and were unable to return fire. The Allies did inflict some damage, but it wasn't enough to slow the attack. At around 1245, the HMS Victory passed through the Allied line, blasting a broadside right into the rear of the French flagship. They were so close that many of the cannonballs traveled through the entire length of the Boussantour, killing and wounding French sailors, causing damage, and sending showers of deadly splinters flying through the gun decks. It was a horrible slaughter. About 400 men were killed or wounded in the space of less than two minutes, nearly half the crew. On deck, Admiral Villeneuve grabbed the ship's eagle from its place of honor on the mast. He believed the HMS Victory would come in close to attempt a boarding. He planned to throw the eagle on board Nelson's flagship to inspire his own men to board her first to get it back. It would have made for a very dramatic scene, but instead, the HMS Victory turned away to face a new threat. Seeing the flagship in danger, Captain Jean Lucas of the French ship Redoutable was bearing down on the HMS Victory. Nelson had to leave his prey to answer this challenge. However, the next five ships of the Northern Column all made for the weakened Boussantour. The crew of the French flagship was still reeling from that devastating broadside and were not able to do much as the enemy approached. Soon, Villeneuve was in an impossible situation, engaged on three sides by overwhelming enemy numbers, in a damaged ship with a depleted crew. To their credit, the French resisted for over an hour against hopeless odds, but the Boussantour would be the first ship to strike its colors and surrender. Admiral Villeneuve was taken prisoner. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. To the south, Collingwood and the HMS Royal Sovereign were still engaged in a savage close-range battle with the Santa Ana. The gunners of both ships blasted each other with broadsides from point-blank range, while on deck, marines and sailors traded musket fire while snipers fired down from the rigging above. Meanwhile, the second ship of the southern column, the HMS Belle Isle, was making its approach. 
She was not as lucky as the HMS Victory or HMS Royal Sovereign, and suffered terribly. One of her marine officers described the scene, quote, The silence on board was almost awful, broken only by the firm voice of the captain. Steady, or starboard a little, which was repeated by the master to the quartermaster at the helm, and occasionally by an officer calling to the now impatient men, Lie down there, you sir. As we got nearer and nearer to the enemy, the silence was, however, broken frequently by the sadly stirring shrieks of the wounded. For of them, and killed, we had more than fifty before we fired a shot, and our colors were three times shot away and re-hoisted during that time. Seeing that our men were fast falling, the first lieutenant ventured to ask Captain Hargood if he had not better show his broadside to the enemy and fire, if only to cover the ship with smoke. The gallant man's reply was somewhat stern but emphatic. No, we are ordered to go through the line, and go through we shall, by God. This state of things had lasted about twenty minutes, and it required the tact of the more experienced officers to keep up the spirits of those around them, by observing that we should soon begin our work. End quote. Despite the damage that she had suffered, the HMS Belle Isle was able to pull up alongside the French ship Fougue and engage her in close combat. But the battle did not go well for the British. Soon, all her masts and her rudder had been shot away, and most of her gun ports were blocked by debris. The HMS Belle Isle was saved by the timely arrival of other ships from the southern column, but she was adrift and nearly unable to fight. To the north, the HMS Victory was hard-pressed. After successfully cutting the enemy line, she had engaged with the French ship Redoutable, opening a huge hole in the Allied formation, through which the rest of the column would follow. Soon, the two ships were so close together that their guns were almost touching. On the HMS Victory, the gunners worried the muzzle flashes from their cannon might set the Redoutable ablaze and with the two ships tangled together, fire on one would almost certainly mean fire on the other. And so, after each shot, a man would lean out of the gun port with a bucket of water to douse the gaping hole they had just blasted into the enemy vessel. The HMS Victory was the larger ship with more guns, but the Redoutable had a crucial advantage in close combat a much larger complement of marines. This gave the French the upper hand in the small-arms firefight taking place on deck, and in the sniper duels that were going on in the rigging of the two ships. Captain Lucas of the Redoutable was one of the best commanders in the Allied fleet. He knew his men could not stand toe-to-toe with the British in an artillery duel, and so he planned to board the HMS Victory as soon as possible, hopefully overpowering her crew and taking the ship before the British gunners had a chance to do their work. He ordered every man he could spare on deck to prepare to board, while the marines poured on musket fire and lobbed grenades to clear the way. Captain Lucas would later recall, quote, A violent small arms exchange ensued. Our fire became so superior that within 15 minutes we had silenced that of the victory. End quote. The marines on board the HMS Victory were outnumbered and outgunned. Soon, the deck of Nelson's flagship was littered with bodies. 
the return fire slackened as the survivors were forced to take cover. Horatio Nelson himself must have made a tempting target for these snipers. Before the battle, his subordinates had begged him to change out of his formal jacket, which was covered with all the gaudy decorations Nelson had received throughout his illustrious career. But Nelson refused. Just like Collingwood eating his apple as the enemy cannonballs flew all around him, he believed in displaying total contempt for danger. And so, he went into battle with a series of shimmering gold and silver bullseyes right over his heart. Perhaps predictably, at about 1.15 in the afternoon, a sniper high in the French rigging took aim at the great admiral and fired. The ball traveled almost directly down, entering Nelson's left shoulder just below the epaulette of his uniform jacket, so close that some of the gold braiding would later be found in the wound. It then traveled through almost his entire torso, clipping the pulmonary artery and severing the spinal cord. Nelson immediately lost feeling in his legs and collapsed to the deck, bleeding profusely. His officers rushed to his side, and Nelson said, quote, They have done for me at last. My backbone is shot through. End quote. He was right. This was a mortal wound. They rushed him below decks to be seen by the surgeon, but not before covering his face with a handkerchief so as not to alarm the men. They were right to do so. Nelson being shot was certainly bad news for the men of the HMS Victory, but they had more pressing concerns. The marines of the Redoutable were still raking the deck with grenades and musket fire, and her crew was assembling on deck to make a boarding attempt. There was a real chance that the British flagship would be taken. But then, just at the worst possible moment for the French, the HMS Temeraire pulled up along the other side of the Redoutable and opened fire. Almost the entire crew of the Redoutable was on deck, weapons in hand, waiting for the order to board. They were sitting ducks. Hundreds were killed in the space of a few moments. The survivors ducked for cover or ran below deck. By around two in the afternoon, almost the entire crew of the Redoutable was dead or wounded. Out of more than 600 men, fewer than a 100 were still fit for duty. Captain Luca himself was badly wounded. The ship was taking on water and still being raked by enemy fire on both sides. Luca ordered his surviving crew to strike the colors. For the men of the Redoutable, the battle was over. It was now only a few hours into the fight, but both commanders were out of commission. Nelson had wanted a pell-mell battle that hinged on the initiative of individual captains, rather than the strategies of admirals. With both commanders out of the fight, Trafalgar was shaping up to be just that. To the south, Collingwood and the HMS Royal Sovereign had gained the upper hand over the Santa Ana. The Spanish resisted doggedly, but it was becoming increasingly clear that they had no hope of winning this fight. In desperation, they cut away the rigging which was entangled with the British ship and attempted to escape. Against all odds, she managed to pull away, but the British gunners took aim at the Santa Ana's masts and managed to knock both of them down. Now dead in the water, the Spanish had no choice but to strike their colors. Elsewhere, 
the rest of the southern column was now engaged. The French ship Algeciras, under Vice Admiral Charles René Magon, tried to pull up behind the HMS Tenant, which was engaged in a hard fight with the Spanish vessel Monarca. Magon wanted to fire a broadside into her rear, the most vulnerable part of any warship. It was a good idea, but his sailors were not up to the challenge. They weren't able to cut the turn in time, and so the Algeciras rammed right into the HMS Tenant. The two ships became tangled together. Magon gave the order to board. His men cheered and began forming up on deck. A young French lieutenant described what happened next. Quote, Everyone appointed for this task went enthusiastically. Although supported by a very lively volley of musket fire, nearly all of them fell victim to their courage and daring. Because, at that moment, the enemy ship fired a whole volley of shot from the cannons on its upper deck. End quote. Just like on the Redoutable, the boarding party was totally decimated, and soon more British ships were on the scene. The men of the Algeciras kept fighting for over an hour, but were eventually forced to surrender. By now, there was no longer any question that Nelson's plan had worked exactly as he had envisioned. The British were swarming all over the southern half of the Franco-Spanish line, pulling up alongside Allied ships and engaging them at close quarters. Just as Nelson had hoped, in almost every one of these small fights, the superior training, experience, and leadership of the British crews made the difference. It's hard to build a narrative of this kind of battle. Trafalgar is not a single coherent story of grand tactical movements, but a series of interconnected smaller stories, dozens of individual fights. Ships paired off to fight in small duels at close range and mini-battles emerged between small groups of ships. No one on either side was directing the action, and no one had a clear view of the whole zone of battle, which stretched over miles and was now shrouded by smoke from gunpowder and burning ships. To the north, the Boussantour and Redoutable had finally surrendered and the HMS Victory was finally free to turn her attention back to her original target, the Santissima Trinidad, the largest warship in history up to that point. The Spanish behemoth had been hanging back from the action, supporting her stricken French allies with long-range artillery fire. She was the mightiest ship in the world, but soon there were three British vessels bearing down on her. The Santissima Trinidad was outgunned against three much more experienced crews. The British gunnery was deadly accurate. A devastating broadside from the HMS Neptune brought down all of her masts in the space of seconds. Soon, the great ship was adrift, taking on water, with around a third of her crew dead or wounded. The Spanish return fire slackened, then stopped. With all her masts gone, the British couldn't tell if the ship had struck its colors. Had the Spanish stopped firing because they were surrendering, or were they simply unable to continue? Lieutenant John Smith of the HMS Africa was given a dubious mission to row over in a small boat under a flag of truce to ask the Spanish if they were giving up. As he approached, a Spanish officer cried back, No, and pointed to the northeast. 
Lieutenant Smith looked up and could see approaching enemy sails. The Santissima Trinidad would not surrender while help was on the way. And so the carnage continued. One of her officers described what he saw. Quote, the scene on board the Santissima Trinidad was simply infernal. She could not move. Fragments of spars, splinters of wood, thick hemp cables cut like corn under the sickle, falling blocks, shreds of canvas, bits of iron, and hundreds of other things that had been wrenched away by the enemy's fire were all piled up along the deck. Blood ran in streams about the deck, and in spite of the sand, the rolling of the ship carried it to and fro until it made strange patterns on the planks. The ship creaked and groaned as she rolled, and through a thousand holes and crevices in her hull, the sea spurted in and began to flood the hold. End quote. To add insult to injury, those approaching sails turned away. No help was coming. Finally, the mighty ship could take no more punishment. With no mast available to strike their colors, the crew found a British national flag and hung it over the side to indicate surrender. The Royal Navy had conquered the most powerful warship ever built. By now, the entire British fleet was engaged, as was every ship in the center and rear of the Franco-Spanish line. The only ships not engaged were those sails that had been spotted by Lieutenant Smith. They came from the squadron at the front of the Allied line, six ships of the line commanded by Vice Admiral Pierre Dumanoir Le Pelly. At the beginning of the battle, as the British closed in, Admiral Villeneuve had signaled to this vanguard squadron to turn around and reinforce the center. His commander's orders were clear, but Admiral Dumanoir did not come. As you might imagine, this hesitation has been hotly debated ever since. Dumanoir has been criticized as passive, or even cowardly. A lot of historians describe the movement of the vanguard squadron as half-hearted or timid. Perhaps Dumanoir was reluctant to risk his ships in what looked like a futile effort. However, we also know that around this point in the battle, the wind slackened. Around this same time, only about half a mile to the south, Nelson's attack column had slowed to a crawl due to lack of wind. Dumanoir and the vanguard squadron were probably affected by the same conditions. And according to one account, they had a lot of trouble maneuvering. Apparently, two of his ships actually crashed into one another as they tried to turn south to save their comrades. Meanwhile, the center of the Allied line was being totally devastated. The British had the numbers in this sector, and so multiple Royal Navy ships were able to team up on the outnumbered French and Spanish. They desperately needed help, and in the early afternoon, an impatient Admiral Villeneuve had repeated his signal to the vanguard squadron, again ordering them to attack. The way things worked out, this would be one of the last signals Villeneuve gave before surrendering. Finally, by around two in the afternoon, Dumanoir got a favorable wind, and the vanguard squadron began to head south, towards the action. This is when they were seen by that Spanish officer on the Santissima Trinidad, convincing him that it was not yet time to surrender. However, 
there would be no relief for the Allied center. As the Vanguard squadron approached, they could clearly see they were too late. The battle was lost. The Busantor had already struck her colors. The Santissima Trinidad was practically destroyed, demasted, adrift, and unable to fire. Dumanoir ordered his squadron to hold position. Two of his captains did not obey. The commanders of the French ship Entrepide and the Spanish ship Neptuno could not bear to see their comrades overpowered by the enemy, and raced into action. This did provide a temporary reprieve for the stricken Allied center, as British ships were forced to redeploy to face this new threat, but it had no impact on the outcome of the battle, and both ships were ultimately captured, so perhaps Dumanoir was right to hold back. After holding his position for a short time, Dumanoir ordered the remaining ships of the Vanguard squadron to turn back north, to return to Cadiz. After the battle, Dumanoir would be called before a board of inquiry to answer for his actions during the battle. He was officially cleared of any misconduct, but the accusation of cowardice dogged him the rest of his career. Without the help of the Vanguard squadron, the Allied center was doomed. Every time a French or Spanish ship surrendered, the British advantage in numbers grew larger. By the late afternoon, the Royal Navy was hunting down the remaining Allied ships in packs, taking on single isolated enemy vessels in groups of three or even four. The remaining French and Spanish ships in this area didn't stand a chance. The fighting was harder in the south, where the two forces were roughly equivalent, but as Allied ships were disabled or forced to surrender, the British began to develop a numerical advantage in this sector as well. Once the Royal Navy broke Villeneuve's line, an Allied defeat became very likely. By late afternoon, defeat was certain, and all signs pointed to a disaster of historic proportions for France and Spain. The ranking Spanish officer in the combined fleet was 49-year-old Admiral Federico Gravina, who had commanded the rear squadron from his flagship, the Principe de Asturias. Gravina was one of the most respected officers in the whole Spanish navy. Napoleon himself once said of him, quote, That damned Gravina is all genius and action in battle. If only Villeneuve had those qualities. End quote. Gravina and his men had fought well all day, coming to the rescue of several stricken Allied ships. But by this point in the battle, she had taken some serious damage, and suffered about 15% casualties, and was engaged with three different enemy ships. Her commander was in bad shape. Admiral Gravina had been hit by canister fire, the equivalent of a shotgun blast from a massive cannon. He was lucky he hadn't been standing directly in the path of the blast, but his left arm was totally shattered, shot through in several places. Perhaps, after suffering such a nasty wound, a person can't help but take stock of things. Gravina could see the battle was lost, and now he made it his mission to save as many of the ships from his squadron as possible. Despite his grotesque wound, Gravina directed the Principe de Asturias through the southern part of the battle zone, helping French and Spanish vessels disengage and make sail whenever he could. He managed to gather together ten ships, 
nearly a quarter of the whole combined fleet, then raised the signal to sail for Cadiz. The Royal Navy vessels in the area were too busy to follow. It was a remarkable achievement, probably the greatest feat of seamanship of the entire campaign on the Allied side. Without Gravina's intervention, there is little doubt that these ships would have been captured or destroyed. However, with the remains of Admiral Gravina's squadron and the Vanguard squadron under Admiral Dumanoir both sailing away from the battle, the fate of the remaining Allied ships was clear. Trafalgar was shaping up to be one of the greatest and most lopsided naval victories of all time. The architect of this stunning blow, Lord Horatio Nelson, was not present to witness his triumph. He was still alive, but only barely. Nelson was deep in the bowels of the HMS Victory, below the waterline, where it was cold and dark, and the sounds of battle were muted. This space was known as the cockpit, and during a battle, it was where the surgeons did their work. With his spinal cord severed, Nelson could not feel the lower half of his body. He could feel warmth slowly spreading through his chest. He knew this was the result of internal bleeding. A doctor asked him if he was in pain. Nelson said the pain was so bad he wished he was dead. Then paused for a moment and continued, quote, One would like to live a little longer, too. End quote. He knew he was dying. The surgeons could do little more than rub his chest, which seemed to relieve some of the pain. Nelson repeatedly asked to see Thomas Hardy, the captain of the HMS Victory, and a close friend. Hardy was understandably very busy, but eventually came below decks to visit his dying chief. He greeted Nelson and told him 14 or 15 enemy ships had already been taken. Nelson replied, quote, That is well but I had bargained for twenty. End quote. The Admiral then asked Hardy to promise him that Lady Emma and Horatia would be looked after when he was gone. Hardy agreed. Nelson then asked him to promise not to throw his body overboard. This was standard procedure during a naval battle, even for officers. But Nelson had always dreamed of a hero's funeral back in London, and he had certainly earned it. Hardy agreed to this too. Then Nelson uttered the famous words, quote, Kiss me, Hardy. End quote. This has been disputed mostly in later generations, when concepts of masculinity had shifted, and the idea of a man asking another man for a kiss was seen as unbecoming of a national hero. But he really said it. In Nelson's world, under these circumstances, no one would have batted an eye. The officers of the Royal Navy were a tight fraternity, and Hardy and Nelson were quite close. These men spent more time around each other than they did around their own families. By our standards, their relationships could be shockingly intense and intimate. But given the conditions these men lived in, and all the dangers that were a constant feature of their lives, and the degree to which they had to rely on each other— Perhaps it was natural to form these strong bonds. Hardy took Nelson's hands and kissed them both, then leaned in to kiss him on the forehead. There was no family around to provide Nelson with a little human tenderness in his final moments, and so his friend stepped up. 
After this small act of humanity, Captain Hardy stood up, left his old friend for the last time, and went back on deck to command his men in battle. After Hardy left, Nelson's condition seemed to worsen. His pulse began to fade, and his consciousness drifted towards delirium. Saying goodbye to his friend seems to have hammered home the reality of his situation, and he began to think of death. Unbidden to no one in particular, he said, quote, I have not been a great sinner, end quote. With each pump of his heart, more blood leaked into his chest. The great admiral was fading away. Again, to no one in particular, Nelson said, quote, Thank God I have done my duty, end quote. He then began repeating this phrase over and over again as his voice faded, Thank God I have done my duty. I think Nelson was the kind of man who would choose his last words quite deliberately. He wanted to ensure this exact phrase was the last to leave his lips, and so he kept repeating it as long as he could. Shortly after four in the afternoon, the recitation stopped. He could speak no more. At around 4.30, Vice Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson passed away, aged 47. No one would dispute that he had done his duty. As Nelson expired, his greatest triumph was entering its final act. The remaining French and Spanish continued to resist bitterly. The fighting near the end of the battle was no less intense than it had been hours earlier. The combined fleet had been overtaken by disaster. The British had already captured more ships than they had at the Nile. Victory was totally out of the question for the Allies. But still, the French and Spanish sailors and marines fought on, out of pride, or out of stubbornness, or out of a sense of honor, or perhaps more practically, to buy time for their comrades, who had managed to break off contact and were sailing for Cadiz. On the Spanish ship San Juan, Captain Cosme Damián de Churuca had ordered the flag nailed to the mast. This was an act of bravado. It sent a message to the enemy that the ship would not strike its colors easily. You might remember that at the beginning of the battle, Churuca had declared that the fleet was doomed and Admiral Villeneuve did not know his business. But despite his doubts, he was resolved to fight to the death. He had said, quote, if you hear my ship is captured, know that I am dead. End quote. Now, he and his men were struggling against multiple enemy vessels. Over a third of the crew was killed or wounded, and the San Juan was nearly reduced to a wreck. Churuca himself was badly hit. A cannonball had torn off one of his legs, but he refused to be taken below to see the surgeon instead ordering his men to prop him up on deck, where he continued to command the ship, giving the order to fire before every broadside as he bled out. Finally, when he was too weak to continue, Churuca assembled his surviving officers and made them all swear that they would not give up the ship as long as he still breathed. This is what he had sworn before the battle, and he aimed to keep his promise. In fact, his officers surpassed his orders, and continued to fight for some time after the great captain had slipped away. It was a brave struggle, but totally hopeless. The San Juan was surrounded by six Royal Navy ships, taking fire from all sides. 
By now, the crew had been totally driven off the main deck by relentless British musket fire, and were only capable of occasionally firing the few still-working cannon on the lower decks. Only one officer was both alive and capable of command. The hold was filling with water, and, faced with the prospect of hundreds of helpless wounded men drowning as the ship sank, the San Juan surrendered. Without her sacrifice, Admiral Gravina and the remains of his squadron might not have been able to make their escape. After the San Juan was repaired and entered British service, her officers installed a plaque in memory of Captain Chiruka, a very worthy opponent. The San Juan was one of the last Allied ships still fighting. Everyone else had either managed to break off contact and sail for Cadiz, or been forced to surrender. At around 5.45 in the evening, a burning French ship, the Aquil, exploded. A British officer who witnessed the scene would later recall, quote, It was a sight the most awful and grand that can be conceived. In a moment, the hull burst into a cloud of smoke and fire. A column of vivid flame shot up to an enormous height in the atmosphere, and terminated by exploding into an immense globe representing, for a few seconds, a prodigious tree in flames, speckled with many dark dots, which the pieces of timber and bodies of men occasioned while they were suspended in the clouds. End quote. The explosion of the Achille is widely considered the last major event of the Battle of Trafalgar. By sunset, every Allied ship was either captured or had made good its escape the greatest naval battle of the 19th century, was over. The combined fleet had started the day with 33 ships of the line. Only 11 had managed to escape. Many of the best ships in the French and Spanish navies were now in the hands of the British. To put the scale of this triumph in perspective, seven years earlier, the Battle of the Nile had been considered one of the most stunning naval victories of the age. At the Nile, the French had only lost 11 ships of the line. Going purely by the numbers, Trafalgar was exactly twice as big a victory. But of course, the numbers only begin to explain the significance of this great battle. However, we've already gone very long in this episode, so that discussion will have to wait for the future. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, 
and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.